message is predestined promises. Predestined promises. So let's open up in prayer. God, we ask that you bless our time, you bless our study of the word. Father, we ask that you give us some good understanding as to uh, what's going on in this letter. Uh, Why you chose to include this in your uh, holy word. And other things did not make it, but this made it in there, Lord. And so you must be trying to say something to us through it. I pray that we'd grasp a hold of it. And I ask, Lord, that you'd be with uh, Sunday school downstairs. That you'd bless their hearts, Lord. That you'd cultivate those seeds being planted. And we ask that you'll bless the nursery this morning. So bless our time together, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we made it. We made it to Ephesians 1. We made it there. Last couple of weeks we've been talking about the, the background and about how this letter came to be and who these people, the Ephesians are and where Ephesus is and uh, who uh, Paul is and uh, kind of this scenario about how this church started. So just to recap super quick, basically, do we have the title slide on there? Let me throw that up there, the title one. Basically, what happened is Paul was ministering in a particular area. He, for whatever reason, led by the Spirit, decided to leave. He left another guy to stay in that area and kind of hold down the fort. When Paul left that area, he ended up in this area called Ephesus. And Ephesus was um, a pretty well-to-do city and uh, fairly commercialized. And they made a ton of money there off of making, actually... um, fake idols of this god Artemis. So it was a hugely pagan town. So Paul shows up there. He runs into a few people. Bible says 12 men in all. And he runs into them and he says, uh, he says that they're disciples. But something about them doesn't quite match up. And so he's like, well, um, you know, you say you're disciples, but it's, it's not like working out for me. Something seems that there's a disconnect. So he says, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And then their response is, uh, never heard of the Holy Spirit, right? They've never heard of it. Who is that? What is that? So he's like, oh, okay, this is why it's not really connecting. Because the Holy Spirit is not really a part of them yet. Because for a born-again Christian believer, the Holy Spirit is the evidence that we have been saved, that Jesus has saved us. So what Paul does is he baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. And then... What he does is he lays hands on them, prays for them, and then they start to talk in other languages and they start to prophesy. To talk in an authoritative way outside of themselves, like from God. An amazing scene. There's about 12 of them. And then what happened from there is what Paul would do is he'd go in the synagogue on the first day of the week there and he would uh, be reasoning from the scriptures, from what they had, the Old Testament, from the Torah, so stories of like Moses, um, you know, Abraham, Jacob, all that, and he'd talk about Jesus Christ and how he fit in. So he would do that, and he did that for three months, and then uh, they didn't like it, and so they kicked him out. And so he basically went to basically a schoolhouse for about two years, taught there, and uh, they created such a big uproar in the city because they got all the sorcerers in the city to convert to Christianity. 
So much so that they actually took all their scrolls and all the stuff that they would use to um, get to demonic uh, forces and worship demonic activity. They, they actually burned it all. Um, then they actually started to um, create a problem for the local economy because nobody was buying um, the uh, little made-up, man-made figurines of the pagan god. So he creates a huge chaos and confusion in the town. And uh, eventually that kind of gets snubbed out. And then Paul leaves them. And we read last week that there's like this teary-eyed goodbye on a beach where they're all sitting there. He's with the elders of the church and they're crying. And they're like, they know they're never going to see him again. He knows they're never going to see them again. And uh, it's a place where he spent the most amount of time in a particular area or region. So he really had a lot invested into them. And so now, ten years later, ten years later, he's writing uh, to this church in Ephesus. And he's writing it when he himself is in prison. So Paul, at this point, when he writes this, when he pens it, he's in prison. He's got chains on himself. And he's writing to them. So we're going to see, like, you know, what's he going to say? What would he say to them? And, you know, what would come up? What would be important? So let's see. Chapter 1, verse 1 here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So we'll pause there. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So right off the bat, he says something really significant that we can't miss. He calls himself and he claims to be an apostle. That's a big deal. Because basically what he's saying is, he's talking on God's part, on God's behalf. Like what he's about to say is from God himself. And uh, this is it. Like he's laying it all out there. An apostle is a very interesting um, place within the church. Like, if we think back to the book of Acts, remember Judas? He was the betrayer, right? He betrayed Jesus, and then he went out and hung himself, and sad scene. Judas, they, they needed somebody to replace him. So they said, hey, listen, let's vote on somebody to replace Judas. And the qualifications were he had to hang out with Jesus, walk with Jesus, walk with us, and see what he has done. And when they, when they replaced Judas... Um, that was basically an apostle opening and the only person that could fill that apostle opening was somebody who walked with Jesus who experienced life with Jesus who um, was able to say that they had that basically three year or two year whatever time period with Jesus of walking with them now Paul who's writing this he never did he never walked with Jesus he did not hang out with him uh, he did not take part in the miracles. So for him to say he's an apostle is kind of a big deal. And it's like, well, how can he say that? How can he go about and say that? Well, the belief is that Paul can say that is because apparently when he got knocked off of his horse on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, because remember his job before he was building churches up uh, was killing Christians. That was his job. While he was on his way to persecute and torture and, and kill Christians, 
he got knocked off of his horse and apparently met face to face with God, have a conversation with God, and uh, God told him to stop. And after that time period, he had revelation from God himself, from Jesus Christ himself. Bless you. And in, in such a way, to such a degree, where he qualifies as an apostle. And so you can imagine when this happens, the actual 12 guys that really did, or 11 guys that really did walk with Jesus and spend time with him, when Paul shows up and he's like, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm converted, I'm all for this whole God thing, I want to help spread the word. They're like, whoa, 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 you know, we know who you are. In fact, you killed one of our own, you stoned to death Stephen, and you're telling us this stuff. And so they actually sent them away for a while. And um, he had to kind of go through some treatment and some time to prove that he was a legitimate apostle and had a legitimate interaction with God. And it turns out that he definitely did and he definitely is an apostle of God. But what about people today that say that they're apostles? So you can go all over, all over the globe, really, and they can say, you know, I'm Apostle Thomas or come listen to Apostle uh, whoever tonight and blah, blah, blah. You know, technically, go by the Bible and how the, what the requirements were. When Judas left, there really aren't any more, quote-unquote, biblical apostles. Just aren't. That office has really been fulfilled. Now, are there some people that maybe minister in apostolic-type gifts where they are very powerful under the Spirit of God? I think that's definitely the case. Definitely the case. And there's other Christians that disagree with me. It doesn't make them not Christian or me not Christian. It's just there's differences. But there's people that can act on their apostolic gifts and so sometimes they like to give themselves the title apostle. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the titles really don't mean a whole lot. It's honestly, do we believe in Jesus Christ or not? Because we're all calling, coming to the cross on level ground there. That's really what matters. But Paul, he needs to say to this group, to this church, that he is an apostle because as soon as he left that area, there were other people that came in and tried to distort and change the message that was already brought there. So he's trying to start off the letter by saying, hey, listen, I'm an apostle. You know, I spent years with you guys. Um, Here's what we're going to say. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints... In Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. That word saints has kind of been like pretty much jacked up nowadays. Um, The reason why it's been jacked up is because the term saints has taken on this, this meaning or this form to where it's like they're just this incredible people that are just superiorly holy in all ways, shapes, or form. And through at least the Catholic Church, they have to go through a beatification, a canonization process, um, which is quite rigorous, and there's a lot of um, people that are fairly high up within the Catholic Church, and they have to investigate and look at a particular person's life, and if they fit particular standards, then they become saints. The only problem with that is that the Bible does not have those same standards. 
So saints in the Bible, to be a saint, it's just a believer in Jesus Christ. So whether you feel like a saint or not, you're a saint if you're a believer, born again believer in Jesus Christ. Whether you have a background you're not so proud of, but now you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're still a saint. And the reason why we know that is you can look even right here to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's who the saints are. They're just the faithful ones. So it says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we go. We're going to get into the letter. And so what we're going to do is we're going to like read through it one time and then we'll go back and we're going to pick some things out. Um, this letter... So, I want to try and give you a warning from here. This is the disclaimer before we get much further into this. For whatever reason, God has seen it fit. Um, as we go through this, Paul just jumps into really deep theological doctrinal issues. This is the way he starts his letter. And we're going to look at why he's doing that. Um, but nonetheless, that's what he does. And it's very, very easy to just zone out and have our minds go other places. It may have happened already. Okay? So, if you could, just look at somebody to your right or to your left and say, stay with it. Yeah, just stay with it. Stay with it. Because it's so easy, I'm telling you. Because he gets into stuff and is like, whoa, whoa, where are we going? And I tried to like chop it up so that we just don't stay on this like deep path that just goes forever and we end up in a black hole somewhere. So, we just want to try and stay with still the spirit of the letter, but what's he talking about? What's going on? And we can keep a couple of things in mind. have this slide up here, I think on the next uh, slide, after this one, so you can fill in your blanks. That way at least give you some time to stay up a little bit. As you read this letter, we're going to keep in mind it was planned by the Father. Next slide. Planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, and presented by the Spirit. Because what Paul is going to do is, he's going to be talking about spiritual blessings. That's why like, we just jump into this like, doctrinal stuff that seems to be deep and heavy. Um, but Paul really wants to make sure that they get, hey listen, here's who you are in Christ Jesus. Here's what God says about you. Here's what that prayer meant. Here's what actually happened in the heavenly realm, and I want to make sure that you get it. So he starts off talking a letter, uh, talking about the letter with this stuff. A plan of spiritual riches, blessings, and benefits that were planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, presented by the Spirit. So planned by the Father before time even began, this whole thing was set into motion. Purchased by the Son on the cross, because all of it's possible only through Him on the cross. And then presented by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was guiding Paul's pen and Paul's mind when he wrote this. And um, we want to make sure that we do not make the same mistake as this next guy in the slide up here. You've probably never seen a picture of this guy. William Randolph Hearst. So this guy made a mistake. This guy was incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wealthy. And uh, in fact, I want to say at one point, he was... He led the entire nation in the early 1900s in newspaper publications as far as owning them. And then he owned so many it even spread into magazine publications. So this guy's filthy rich. 
He was also, because he was so rich, he was a huge collector of art. He just loved art, memorabilia, paintings, collectibles, sculptures, all kinds of stuff. And he had a vast collection. So he was reading through whatever it was he was reading through a particular day and he said, hey, you know, I really want this particular valuable. So he sends his assistant abroad, overseas, in Europe somewhere to go pick up what he wanted, what he's looking for. And uh, his assistant just looks all over the place. Cannot find it, cannot find it, cannot find it. So then he comes back home. And um, his assistant, he goes, uh, you know, he said, I went abroad. He said, I cannot find that stuff anywhere. And uh, this guy, uh, William Hurst, was not happy about it. But his assistant goes, said, you know, he said, um, actually, you know, I checked with some of the workers here. He said, uh, where do you have those articles here in the house? And William Hurst had absolutely no idea because he never checked his records. And as far as what he has, he just wanted to continue to work to accumulate more things. If he was fairly aware of what he already owned, what was already his, what was already in his possession, he would not have to waste all that time, energy, and effort for somebody else going to look for stuff that's already his. It was already guaranteed to him. Sitting in his house, probably collecting dust. Many times, that's the story for us as Christians. God has said and has made clear for Christians things that are already ours, that we own, that we possess, because He has said so. And then we spend a ton of time running around with our heads cut off, trying to make things happen, trying to put things into place, getting super anxious and super stressful. It's like, I've already done this for you. We've already worked this thing out. Let me show you how we can do this together. And so I think that's kind of Paul's point when he writes this letter, saying, hey, listen, here's our blessings. Here's what we are in Christ. Here's who we are. I think many times we need those reminders. Because I don't know about you, but as far as TV goes, and social media goes, and radio goes, and there's all kinds of messages as far as what supposedly God is saying. And you know, in Ephesus, where it's like a hub for making false gods, I'm sure they're saying all kinds of stuff that God supposedly says as well. And so Paul, right off the bat, he's like, hey man, let's just get this thing clear again. Let's go right back to the basics. So let's see what he says. We'll read it through like a letter, and then we'll talk about it. It says, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined, there we say predestined, right? That's a word there. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. 
and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In verse 11 he says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. That's just like His beginning part of the letter. It's like, whoa, what did He just say? It's like a lot of words, but I, yeah. It's like when I call on kids in class sometimes, you know, we're working through classwork and homework in class, and I know we're getting to a difficult problem, and it basically does no good if I read the directions, that's pretty much useless. So I'll have so-and-so, you know, read the directions, and as soon as they're done, I'll say, okay, what did it say? And it's just. I don't know, Mr. Murphy has some words, but I so okay, so like, like, let's read it now and attach our brains to the reading and let's see if we can get somewhere with it. It's kind of like that. Like there's so much that he just said in there. He's talking about like predestination and then he's talking about a deposit of the Holy Spirit and then he's talking about redemption for his glory. What? What are we saying? If it was an introduction letter to somebody I'm writing, I, I don't know, I, I'd probably maybe joke around a little bit or be like, remember that time when? Or how so-and-so? Or I don't know. Paul is just like, he just gets right to stuff. It makes me think that maybe he was kind of a boring person in public. I, I, don't, I don't really know, but he just gets right to it. So let's see what's going on here. We'll take a look at a couple things. Um, one word, and it has to do with the title in our message. Predestined promises. Predestination. God chooses, but not everyone responds. God chooses, but not everyone responds. Take a look at a couple of things, a couple of these verses. Look back at verse 5. It says, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. And then later on in verse 11, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined Destined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. There's this idea, certainly through Scripture, that God has chosen those who will be quote-unquote saved. He's made the choice. He is predestined. Predestined means to make a decision beforehand. So he made a decision, apparently, before even time began. And the question is, what did he make a decision about before time began? Now, this is a very sticky issue. Now, let me tell you why. Because the root of what we're about to talk about has everything to do with God's fairness. And this is where people get hot and bothered about stuff. 
So you want to get into Christian circles where people get like real touchy about things and probably where most of the world couldn't care. This is one of those issues. Um, there's a group called Calvinists. We're not going to get real deep into this, but just surface level. group called Calvinists. Say Calvinists. 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 And there's a group called Armenians. Say Armenians. Armenians. Right. So Calvinists, they staunchly believe that basically God has already chosen who's going to commit to Him. He's chosen who's going to be saved. And God can do that if He wants to because He is God and that's just it. He made the choice. He made the decision. The Armenians... And I'm like, well, maybe partially. He's definitely in control, but it makes it seem like there's no choice involved from the person. And it also makes it seem like he only created some people just to go to hell. So you can see how this gets difficult. And you can see, and maybe you've come in contact and talked with maybe people on either side. And so you can see where the difficulty comes into play there. And um, it's significant because, well, what kind of God would it be if He full well knewing when He created who the elect or chosen ones would be and He also knew who would not be part of the elect and not be part of the chosen ones? What kind of God would that be? And how fair is that? I think those are good questions. Those are honest questions. I've been battling those questions for about three, four hundred years now. So I'm not expecting we're going to handle all that this morning. Um, but I can tell you, it's not a problem to ask those things, and it's not a problem to be thinking about that. Um, I can tell you that as far as this church goes, um, the thought, uh, or our take on it, is that it's kind of a mixture of both. We're definitely standing in agreement with what some Calvinists say, we stand in agreement with what the Armenians say, and it's kind of like a mixture of the two. Because certainly, geez, you can't deny Ephesians 1 here, with all this predestination stuff, we have been predestined, we have been adopted, there's people that have been chosen, and God chose it from the beginning. Can we say that's not in there? I mean, it's there, it's staring you in the face. So, like, you can't get real mad at the Calvinist side for that. But at the same time, there's other passages of Scripture um, that are very important that I think, at least from the Calvinist end, they definitely need to consider. Take a look at, at this slide. It says, do we have a choice on the slide? It says, 1 Timothy 2.4. Uh, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants, right, this is God, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is what God wants to do. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that's God's desire. But anybody knows that spent any time in the Bible at all, that's not what happens in the end. 
not everybody is quote-unquote saved. Not everybody will end up in heaven. And Jesus made it very clear that broad is the road. And wide are the gates that lead to destruction, but narrow is the path right, that leads to eternal life. But God wills it. He wants it. So what gets in the way of getting what God wants to have happen? It's a good question, right? The thing that gets in the way of what God would like to see happen, just like what gets in the way of what I would like my son Jaron to do, or what you would like your kids to do, is when they have a choice. I hope to God Jaron wants to do the things I'd like him to do so that he can see the benefits to it. At the end of the day, he's got a choice. I mean, that's just... When he gets 18, 19, 20 years old, he's going to be making his own choices. The thing that gets in the way is our choice. So the Armenian side definitely has a point. It's not like God has just made a decision, boom, and that's just the way it is, and oh well with everybody else. God could do that if he wanted to, but I think if he take that approach, he ignores some parts of the Bible like this, where death gives credence to the power of a choice. Throughout the Bible, um, there have been many instances um, where you can see Jesus uh, talking to Jerusalem as a whole or to particular groups of people, and he says, man, if you guys would just follow after me, if you guys would just choose this way, Or after Palm Sunday, he goes, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I wish that you would just embrace me and come to me. But they just didn't want to. Right? They didn't want to. That power of choice is in there. And um, this is like a serious issue throughout this whole chapter in Ephesians 1 as far as predestination, adoption, and the elect. And what kind of God is this and how does this stuff work? But I hope that you're seeing that predestination. God has planned from the very beginning. He has predestined certain promises that are true no matter what all time. So look at it this way. If we can look at it this way. So if somebody has committed their life to Christ, they become a born-again, Bible-believing Christian, surrendered their life to Him. As soon as that has happened, it was predetermined before the beginning of time that nothing could separate that born-again, Bible-believing Christian from the love of Christ and from heaven. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's good news. Because I don't know about you, but uh, I got a few mistakes. So, that's kind of nice to know. Nothing separates the Christian from the promises that God has for them. Nothing at all. So in that sense, yes, there definitely is a predestination. Something has been decided before time even began. And the thing that was decided was, you know what? If they decide to submit their lives to me, they're with me forever and I'll protect them and keep them forever. Just like a child getting adopted. And the cool thing about adoption is that when you go through the adoption process 
It's like there's a choice being made on purpose of who somebody wants to choose. Like they had time to think about it. They had time to look at paperwork. They had time to do research. And after all the delegation and thought process has been done, they say, I still want this little one right here. Now, I don't know how many of you sitting here would still want uh, particular children if you had a choice in the matter about a lot of things. Because of the struggles maybe going on and the difficulties, right? The thing with adoption is you're presented with all of the evidence, the entire case, the whole person, and he still says, no, I want them. I'm invested into them. I intentionally want them and want to love them. That's what's been predetermined. And that is good news. The other side of the coin is that hell is a real place and that there's, there's not going to be anybody in hell that did not choose to be there. So at some point along in their life, they've repeatedly said, no, I don't want to surrender to God. I don't want to surrender to Christ fully. I don't really want to accept what Jesus has done on the cross. I don't want Him running the show in my life. In that case, they made their own choice. That's not what God had in mind. That's not what He wanted for them. That wasn't like the original goal, but that's what they chose to do. So, as I was thinking about this stuff, you still with me? Kind of? Sort of? Okay. It's like, you know, you won't just think of this on you know normal occasions, right? There's a lot going on here. Um, here's the question that I was thinking of when, when I was going through it and I was thinking about the letter and you know there's all kinds of events that happened in Paul's life there's all kinds of events that happened in Jesus' life only particular things made it into the Bible and God saw it fit only for those particular things to make it into the Bible so that we can learn from those particular things whatever they are so my question as I was going through some of this stuff on the next slide here is why all this predestination and adoption talk? Why is he talking about all this stuff? Paul's writing this letter to this group of people in Ephesus, and it seems pretty heavy duty. I don't know how many people would start a letter, you know, really like that. Why? Why, why, why are we talking about this right now? Um, here's one possible answer that I thought of. He's talking about this predestination and adoption talk so that they are assured, secured, and confident of who God is and what He says. So that way they are assured, secured, and confident of who God is and what He says. Because when that happens in a person's life, and we know that we know that we know that we know that man, God has said this about us, and that whatever is true for us, does it or does it not change the entire rest of your life? And does it or does it not change the priorities in our life? And does it or does it not change the direction of our lives? Because now what happens is we're not necessarily living our life just based on 
hopefully what leads to less stress and more happiness and more peace, now we start to live our life towards what He said and what the promises are. It's a radical change. And then the difficulty that happens is that, okay, well what happens when my emotions are going crazy all over the place and I'm really struggling but I really want to believe the promises over here and so my heart and my mind just get into a battle. Is God good? Is this stuff true? Am I really adopted into this kingdom even based on what I did last night? Even based on what I did before? Even what I'm planning to do later on? Is that stuff still true? Predestined? Does He really want me to that degree and love me that much? That's what He says. That's not what I'm saying. That's what He says. And when that foundation is pretty solid, everything else on life is built on top of that. Now it's more clear where I want to spend my money. Now it's more clear as far as what kind of values do I want to instill and raise my kids in. Now it's more clear what do I want my marriage to look like? What is God looking to do with it? Now it's more clear where am I going to spend like my retirement age or retirement money? Now it's more clear, since I'm in this neighborhood, how does God want to use me with like what's around here? Because the entire foundation is built upon a deposit that's sitting in us. We closed up that passage with Paul saying there is a deposit in the believer's life. Meaning, we don't really cash in on our life until later on. So just like we've talked about before, the big time deposit gets made when we stand before the king and he's hoping that there's a deposit of the Holy Spirit there because it's not there for all people, only for those that have surrendered their lives to Christ entirely. The Holy Spirit then lives in them. If people have not, the deposit's not there. So just like you know, when you go to the bank and or you write out a check, there's got to be some funds there. Otherwise, it's just a piece of paper. Don't just write checks everywhere. You know what I mean? Just, go ahead. Not like in Dumb and Dumber. How many people? How many people want to admit to seeing the movie Dumb and Dumber? Just out of curiosity. Yes, that's right. So, in the movie Dumb and Dumber, right? Where at the end they spent all the money that they had inside the briefcase, and they just put a bunch of IOUs in there. Oh, they're as good as money. No, yeah, it's like, no, they're not. They're just as good as money. It's insane talk. As far as when we get to heaven, hopefully our IOU is taken care of. That's the whole point of the deposit of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be some serious IOUs. And honestly, the biggest one that matters is S-I-N, Right? Sin. That's the one that matters. And so that deposit that's in us 
that just goes to show that these blessings right now that we're talking about in life right now, okay, we're going to deal with things, we're going to go through stuff. But the goal and the mindset of the Christian is we get through what God has for us here and then life on the other side is where life is really lived. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our days. That's like where we're really going to experience life. This is just a snap, quick preview. The Bible calls it just but a mist. That's it. Like you spray your Lysol can in the bathroom and you just see those things and then they go. That's like what our life is like. It's just but a mist. You just spray your Lysol can. Like That's it. That's all we get. That's all we get here. The bulk is on the other side. And man, when that is stamped and imprinted on our minds... You just don't waste your time with a lot of other crap. You don't want to. Because you realize our time here is short. Why get distracted by other stuff? And so I think that's why Paul spends so much time in the beginning of this letter in Ephesians. So he wants to say, hey listen. Here's what it means to be in Christ. Let's just make sure this foundation is good. And then what happens is later on in Ephesians, like chapters 3 or 4, 5, and 6, he's going to get into, here's how we can further live and act to make sure that these blessings become a real, live, active part of our life to where they're tangible. Not just something that we talk about, and not just something that happens intellectually, but it's actually a part of our lives. Does that make sense? So why all this predestination, adoption talk, predestined promises? Well, man, I don't know about you, but I am very, very grateful um, that I have a Savior who knows and understands that at the end of the day, we're not much different than Adam and Eve where we're just dust. We're going to make mistakes, but as long as I stay surrendered and repentful, there is nothing that can separate me or you from the love of Christ. And then when we come in prayer, and when we choose to live a life of faith, it is actually powerful and impactful. So He doesn't just stop with salvation. He then equips us to live life in an empowering way. And so many times, like, that's the difficult part. You know what I mean? It's actually living life empowered and led by that deposit that's living in the believer. Because so many times we just let so many other things just get in the way of what that Holy Spirit wants to do that's inside of us. So right now we have a good time during communion time to at least maybe put some of those things before God that might just get in the way. Just show their ugly heads now and again. That just squash that voice of the Holy Spirit that's within us trying to guide us and show us what to do. And if you would classify yourself or say that you are not totally confident or even unsure that the Holy Spirit even lives in you, then I wouldn't take communion. There's really not not much of a point. Because the whole point of communion is to reflect, think about, and give thanks for the price that has been paid 
for the surrendered believer. Otherwise, it just becomes another routine thing. So we're going to have um, communion time together. We're going to play a song back there and cue it up. Uh, the communion is up here. If you'd like to come up and take part in communion, you can take the elements, hold on to them. Um, and if you feel like you shouldn't take communion, I wouldn't take communion. Because I know there's not that many people here, but honestly, the only audience that matters is one. So that's the only one we got to worry about. Um, so if you could, take the communion elements and hold on to them, and then we're going to take it together and we'll play the song. <laughs>